sovereign countries can't file for bankruptcy. So because of that, there's no institution that can readily solve the kinds of coordination problems that we sometimes see on the creditor side where the self-interested behavior of one or a small group of creditors can in principle undermine a debt restructuring that's in the collective best interests. This is all uh, old news to people who are familiar with sovereign debt markets. And the solution has long been to turn to the institution of contract and in particular to write clauses, and we're going to call them CACs, short for collective action clauses, that replicate a particular feature of bankruptcy, which is the ability for a creditor majority or supermajority to agree to a restructuring and to bind all of the creditors to the outcome. So we're here today to talk about CACs, and we're here with our guest, the brilliant Anna Gelpern. I, I think it's fair to say, um, I'm just going to say it about myself, I feel like I know a fair bit about sovereign debt markets. That doesn't mean I don't learn from other people. I learn from basically everybody I meet. It is a reminder that I only know my own little corner of the world. But there are very few people I meet who know basically everything, I think. Certainly um, an astonishing amount about everything. And Anna is one of the world's foremost experts on sovereign debt, on financial regulation more broadly. And we are here today to learn what we can from her about CACs. So welcome, Anna. Thank you for joining us. Mark, thank you. That is like one heck of a way to set up expectations. So it's all, it's all the way down from here, folks. I'm honored. Our guests will be accustomed to the downward slope. Me too and I have prepared them, or, uh, our listeners, well for, for that expectation. Um, there's a lot going on in the world of tax, including a sort of kerfuffle um, that sprung out of the recent, uh, really ongoing restructurings in Argentina and Ecuador. And I was wondering if you could maybe just give us an introduction to what is going on that is so controversial in how Argentina and Ecuador have gone about their restructurings. Mark, that is just one heck of a great question because one answer to your question is beats me. I don't know what's so controversial about what happened. And I think some of it could just be, you know, the old a relationship theory of everything, which is that everyone involved in this summer's restructurings has a history in this world, and it's a small world, and emotions are running high in a world that is typically portrayed as, you know, tough, arm's length, you know, everybody drives a hard bargain and then, you know, has a drink afterwards. So clearly that's not quite an accurate description of high finance, at least this corner of high finance. So with that background in mind, um, you know, Argentina was in default and increasingly cut off from financial markets between 2001 and 2016. And in 2016, it settled some very disruptive, very um, effective lawsuits, contract lawsuits, 
and issued a hootload of debt with brand new contract terms. And those brand new latest model collective action clauses, so these clauses that uh, allow a majority of creditors to restructure the debt over the objections of the minority, those clauses had not just sort of come out of market ingenuity, but they originated in a very kind of institutionally curious process where market associations, governments, multilateral institutions like the IMF got together and really coordinated what was meant to be the latest, most potent, most effective version of um, these majority amendment provisions. And in particular, these provisions gave the sovereign borrower a choice of three amendment methods. So the first one is the one that has been familiar uh, to the corporate markets, certainly for more than a century, and the London sovereign market, same thing, and that emerged in New York with lots of fanfare in 2003. And those are the series-by-series majority amendment terms, series-by-series CACs. So a particular series of bonds holds a vote, 75% plus one of the outstanding principal, let's say, vote to accept the borrower's restructuring proposal, the minority is bound, and that particular bond is restructured. The trouble with that is is most borrowers, certainly big borrowers like Argentina, very active borrowers, have lots and lots of bond series. And when you think about how this works, actually, you could make a pretty decent argument that series by series CACs increased the risk of holdouts in sovereign bonds. Because on the one hand, they create a certain kind of predictability for would-be holdouts, right? You know exactly, you know, you need 25% to block the restructuring of this bond. If it trades at 10 cents on the dollar, and if it's a pretty small bond, it's actually a wonderfully sort of cheap ticket to free riding, right? Because if everybody else restructures, then that frees up the cash flow for the holdouts on this particular bond. In addition, that generation of CACs also raised the threshold for amending other provisions that could be used to create the incentives for bondholders to participate. So it's sort of, there is a good argument to be made that these series by series CACs actually made it harder to restructure by giving a roadmap to holdouts and how to free ride. The second choice is was um, the so-called tool limb. It's kind of graphic. I always think of Frankenstein when I think of limbs or just kind of stray limbs, you know, zombies, I don't know. Um, two limb aggregation. And so two limbs here refers to the particular voting procedure that you would use to restructure two or more series of bonds 
together. So rather than going one, one series by one series, you might say, well, how about taking three series of bonds? And then we will take two votes, or we will count the votes in two ways. One is we will count the votes for the entire aggregated pool of bonds. So let's say each of the three is 100, I don't know, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, not 100 million is too little, let's say a billion dollars, I don't know, right? So you would take, uh, you would need, uh, let's say, 85% of the $3 billion pool, right? But then in addition to that, you would need, let's say, 66 and two-thirds percent of each of the series in that pool. So what happens is you're suddenly raising the bar for the holdout. You're saying, well, how about instead of only 25% blocking position, you would need to get 33 and a third percent plus. Right? So it just makes it a bit harder. It's still not impossible, but the threshold certainly makes a difference. Now, the big innovation in 2014 and 2015 was the so-called single limb aggregated CAC, and that is a voting procedure that basically dispenses altogether with the series by series vote. So all you need, it's a little, I always think of it as popular vote and, you know, electoral college, except, you know, with two limb aggregation, you need both popular vote and electoral college, right? right. Single limb aggregation, it's just the popular vote, right? And with series by series aggregation, it's just the electoral college, right? So the 2014 and 2015 CACs, the big innovation was, again, the popular vote only, the uh, single limb aggregation. And it's a very powerful tool because when you think about it, if a Montana, right, votes against the borrower's proposal, the debtor's proposal to restructure, Montana is pretty small, uh, you know, if we're counting by population, right? Even if 100% of our Montana bond votes against, they could still be outvoted by, you know, the other 49 states, the other 49 bond series in my, right? So the concern there was that uh, the debtors would manipulate or would abuse this procedure to oppress minority creditors. And so that procedure has a series of safeguards that turned out to be pretty powerful. And one of them is that if you're going to use this single limb aggregation procedure, you have to essentially give the same exact deal to all of the bonds going, uh, being uh, pooled, right? And mm -hmm. pooled and pulled. And that's from the from a sort of economic financial perspective. It's kind of tricky because think about a bond that matures three weeks from now and a bond that matures 30 years from now. They have really different interests, really different incentives uh, would be required to get them to participate. And ditto if you have, you know, a zero coupon bond, let's say, and a bond with a really high 
interest rate, right? So that, you know, the principal amount of one represents total compensation. The principal amount of, of the other represents a teeny part of the compensation. Since the principal amount is, is driving the vote, you could see, you know, one group of creditors being very excited about participating and the other group of creditors, you know, absolutely refusing. So giving the same deal to everybody is quite a constraint. Now, you could get around that by sub-aggregating, right? And that's something that, you know, I think we were all screaming and yelling about for years, um, but nobody was paying attention to. Everybody was focusing on, well, you know, what is uniformly applicable? What is it? What is this uniformly applicable condition that requires the debtor to give the same deal to everybody? And nobody focused on the fact that, well, actually, you could give different deals to different groups. You would just have to break up the voting pools. Another interesting thing is that is that you could not just break up the voting pools for purposes of administering the single limb vote, but you could break up the pools and use a different procedure for each one of them, and if you wanted to. So, you know, there are safeguards, but there are also there's also quite a bit of flexibility. And Argentina used that flexibility, right? Well, they tried. Right. So what Argentina, so the other safeguard, and not just for single limb, but the other safeguard for the, these aggregated CACs was that the debtor had to tell the creditors in advance how it would, what voting procedures it would use and how it would pull the different bonds. And in the documentation, it said that this choice would be final, right? And there are also enhanced disclosure requirements. So not only would you have to tell the bondholders how you're going to break up the stock of bonds, but you would also have to tell them how you're treating you know, loans, how you're treating multilateral debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So the disclosure requirement is a fair bit more robust in, these, uh, in this latest generation of CACs. Fine. Well, what Argentina did in the first instance was and Argentina and Ecuador, actually, the big surprise here was that both Argentina and Ecuador decided to use two-limb aggregation, so this combination of electoral college and popular vote method, right? rather than what everyone expected them to do, which was single-limb, which is the most powerful one. And the explanation for that is fairly straightforward. Uniform applicability condition is actually fairly demanding. And then the single limb aggregation option had a fairly high voting threshold, 75%, whereas the per series voting threshold in two limb was, all right, it escapes me now. I think it was 50%, wasn't it 50% or 66 and two thirds? It was, it was way lower uh, in any event. And the... Uh, so, you know, the simple explanation is that, you know, if you're not sure you're going to get 75%, you're going to try to use the method that has a lower threshold. But one interesting thing that Argentina did, and I, and I think there was a lot of confusion about it early on, was that they said, well, we are going to, we reserve the right once we get all the votes in to repool 
the voting pool. So it's sort of like saying, you know what, after the electoral college vote has been cast, we will, you know, I don't know, merge Montana and Wyoming, right? Or I mean, it, it was sort of one of those things. And that I think was a bit of a surprise. And I'll go into why they might have, you know, why it wasn't a crazy thing for them to do, but also why it was um, a bit of a shock. And then second, they said, well, we would also reserve the right after having counted the votes in this, you know, two-limb procedure to then go back and take all of the bonds that have already been restructured, right, and then pool them with everybody who's left over, sort of all the holdouts that are left, and then amend the resulting overall pool using the single limb super powerful procedure, right? So give everybody an identical offer, but then that offer would in effect use the mechanism that use the kind of the yield, the, the product of the two limb vote, which includes some creditors that came in kicking and screaming, but were outvoted. Right, right, right. Right. So you sort of take all the no's and pool them with the yeses, right? And then use that resulting pool to sweep in their remaining no's. So it sounds like in a way that, and this is probably a good point to do our transition into, I think one of the things we wanted to talk about was questions of sort of interpretation, how we approach these these complicated provisions as a matter of contract law. But as I sort of understand it, simplistically, you know, as these CACs have gotten more and more powerful, the understanding was sort of like, well, you should, they're going to now be the thing that you use rather than the kind of historic practice, which was often, we can't really amend the restructuring terms. We're going to amend some other stuff that has a lower voting threshold, and we're going to encourage people to you know, swap those bonds, which are less attractive now for some new ones. And Argentina basically did that to take away some of the restrictions on its use of the CAC, or at least it threatened to do that, which to my mind raises the question, I guess, whether you, it's really possible to write a clause that is not subject to clever reading. And maybe that's the question we should interbreak with and then come back and think about the implications of this for these clauses as contracts. Yeah, so this this was this was fascinating. Thank you for that really clear explanation, Anna. You said a couple of very interesting things that I'm hoping uh, we can learn more about in the next half. Uh, one was that there was this expectation with this magical single limb thingy-me-jiggy that it would be, it could be used uh, to powerful effect. And uh, then it turns out, if I'm understanding you correctly, that the assumption that all of the bonds basically would be trading at the same price turned out to be wrong. The 30-year people didn't want the same deal as the 20-year people or the two-day people. And once that turned out to be the reality with Ecuador and Argentina, then single limb was no longer the thing that everybody wanted and they had to go back to the old procedures. And so in a sense, the, the magic solution didn't really work. And so I'm wondering whether 
this uh, uniformly applicable thingamajiggy is now being reformed by people so that we can get back the magic solution. And so, you know, in, in terms of discussing how the market reacts to learning, as we all hopefully do, that there are flaws in the document, that, that what's that process? Uh, it's something that you know uh, immense amount, right? But that's for the second half. So thank you so much for setting the stage and uh, we'll get to the fun, gossipy stuff about uh, the controversy in part two. So Anna, thank you so much. Uh, for that very clear articulation. But as I mentioned before, I want to get to the good gossipy stuff now, now that we have gotten the mechanics out of the way. And one of the things that has astonished me about the Argentine-Ecuador drama, particularly the Argentine variation on it, is uh, how much the Argentine strategy pissed off the creditors. And I, I, I'd love uh, to hear about why you think that happened. My very simplistic understanding of what Argentina was trying to do, the, what you had described uh, prior to the break, is that you know th- they were trying to combine Montana and Wyoming after the fact, kind of looks a little bit sleazy, but it seemed to be allowed by the contract. It, it was allowed by uh, maybe a lower vote threshold than the creditors uh, uh, expected, although it's hard to feel sympathy for that expectation, given that it's kind of explicitly in the contract. And these are big boys and big girls. Now, that's the part that my understanding is creditors got pissed off about. Then there was the second half of that that you described, the, the, the wonderfully, uh, I think, incredibly stupidly named uh, Pac-Man strategy, where they were going to, you know, eat up the dissenting creditors uh, by, you know, I don't know, some computer game bizarro stuff. Uh, and that was kind of uh, extra sleazy. But most people... Uh, to my knowledge, didn't really understand how that worked. It was the first part that was perfectly acceptable according to the contracts uh, that pissed people off. And uh, I am not really that interested in whether Argentina was a bad actor or whether the lawyer screwed up or Mr. Guzman was too aggressive. I'm interested in when do creditors get angry? I I can't tell. I mean, this was the contract that they negotiated. Uh, did they just not know what was in the contract? Did they forget to read? Did their lawyers not tell them? Uh, because now that they're pissed off, they want all sorts of stuff. They want to change the trust structures. They want to change the voting percentages. Uh, there, there is a lot of outrage on the creditor side for stuff that they seem to have already agreed to. So uh, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on the good gossipy part of this story. Me too. I think some of it has to do with what I started with. So I'm not sure that Argentina and Ecuador, each of which had some pretty contentious restructurings involving the same people. I don't, I'm not sure that these are the best examples of uh, kind of when contracts get emotional thesis, right? It's just, I think that's an open question. I do think, and and I agree with you, by the way, completely, that Pac-Man sounds really colorful, 
but it is, I don't think anybody actually knows what it means. And someone who's a very sophisticated journalist asked me at one point, well, so Pac-Man is the debtor, right? And I'm like, no, 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 Pac-Man is the creditors. It's, it's all the people that got restructured that are now swallowing up all the leftovers. And that's because I think of CACs as an intercreditor device. But I think there's a lot of kind of sentiment out there that it's actually a stick that the debtor uses to beat up creditors. I think that's just uh, probably more wrong than right. But apart from the idiosyncrasies of this and the kind of colorful language, I do think that just by canonical contract interpretation standards, I can understand being upset about redesignation, you know, repooling after the vote a lot more readily than I can understand being upset with, uh, you know, the serial restructuring strategy, which was not barred anywhere whatsoever. Uh, I mean, the documents allowed that most clearly. Now, the trouble with redesignation is that there was this term that said, you know, the debtor can choose which way they can restructure, which way they go about, you know, polling their constituents, polling their bondholders. But once they make that choice, that choice is, quote unquote, final. Of course, the trouble is that the provision that contained the word final could be amended by a simple majority vote. So lower than, you know, anything else. So final really never did mean final if you read the document carefully. But of course, nobody does read the documents carefully. And this, the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, although, of course, I, I just did. Um, the, everybody knew, didn't they, that if it wasn't in the reserve matter list, it was fair game, the list of things that are subject to the highest voting threshold. So my initial reaction to what Argentina was doing was kind of skepticism and, and maybe I thought that they were pulling a fast one. And the more I have thought about it, the more I thought, this might just be creditor side opportunism where people oh, yeah. discovered legal rights they never knew they had and became very attached to them, even though they had never heard of them before in the context they of They didn't really exist, right? I mean, this is sort of, if you're getting paid two and 20, you should probably invest in more than elementary school reading comprehension, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, that's just never ceased to puzzle me. But the... And moreover, you see, so I, it, earlier on, I described this ex post redesignation repooling as, you know, similar to kind of deciding to merge Montana and Wyoming. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Because merging Montana and Wyoming sounds kind of outrageous, or maybe it's more like merging Montana and California or Wyoming and California, right? So the reason is as follows. This two-limb aggregation mechanism which was only included in a grand total of four sovereign issues between the time it was first uh, introduced in 2003 and the time Argentina, you know, restructured in 2016 and, and had never been used before. The original version of that went as follows. You would, a vote would be effective with, let's say, 85% of all, right, meaning popular vote of the bonds, and let's say 66 and two thirds of 
that voting bond, right? So if that bond, if your bond didn't clear the 66 and two thirds threshold, then that bond dropped out of the restructuring. But everybody else didn't depend on your vote, right? By the time Argentina adopted these clauses in 2016, one of the forms, and it so happens that it's the version that Argentina adopted, had replaced the word that with the word each, right? So think about the meaning of this vote is effective, this amendment becomes effective with the consent of 85% of all and 66 and two third percent of each. Right? So all of a sudden, Wyoming doesn't just drop out. Wyoming blows up the union. And that is a genuine problem. It is not a problem for which redesignation is the sole or even the most surgical solution. There are other ways of addressing that problem. Argentina happens to have chosen in the first instance a fairly expansive one, you know, solution, and one that, again, and this may, again, just be emotion, right? I mean, when you see the word final, especially when you read it on the day that, you know, the shit hits the fan, you know, you think final is final, right? You don't say, oh, but there's another provision somewhere else where it says final can be amended by, you know, the guy next door without my consent. So I think this element of surprise and this element of kind of being outwitted in a mechanical sense, in an environment where there was already a lot of relational static, right? I think that's probably one reason why folks were ticked off. Now, all that said, I think there's an enormous amount of theater in all of this. I mean, you know, if you, got, if you had a penny every time you got a call from a reporter that says, oh my God, I'm writing a story. Argentina's creditors are mad at Argentina. You know, the response is like, yeah, and it's Tuesday, right? <laughs> it's sort of, you know, dog bites man story of the century. But that said, I do think that if we abstract ourselves from this particular context and the relational kind of barnacles here, I do think that any creditor seeing final and being told that final doesn't mean final, you know, might be discomfited, right? Is that, you know, cause for um, blowing up an otherwise economically acceptable deal? No, right? So, Anna, let me, um, let me ask you, this, this is really, really fascinating. The, the, I confess that when I read the, the language of final, I went to Mark and I said, final is final. I, you, that's, you need 100% of the creditors to change that. And he's like, no, don't be stupid. It only requires 50%. You know, know this isn't true because Me Too thinks you can change everything. Sorry. But <laughs> final, I, Anna's right. I did make the argument that final sounds kind of final. You have to give me that, uh, but in our, in the blog post that we wrote afterwards, we you know as as usual, I conceded to Mark's uh, devastating critique, <laughs> lack of logic in my <laughs> argument. Uh, but Anna, I, I wanted to uh, take you into the realm of legal academic weeds and ask about what you think about interpretation. I I loved your explanation of sort of that becomes each and really changes dramatically the, the way in which 
the English law contracts work. I think it's the New York law contracts work. And uh, it seems also clear that people in the market thought they were basically the same. And so all of us, yeah, all of a sudden they wake up and they're like, oh shit, they're not the same. They're not the same in big ways. Now, if this went to court, the the traditional uh, horse and buggy type of contract interpretation that we teach our students, uh, you know, sophisticated parties know exactly what they're drafting. That would mean, you know, they'd just say, well, New York has a the special logic in England has its own special logic. Maybe there are different types of investors and different types of sovereigns. And maybe the prices of the bonds are so completely different. And, you know, we just read the words. That's it. But these are boilerplate contracts. And you, more than anybody in the world, knows how they got created. In fact, you know every stage of every type of creation in the modern era. And what do you think courts should do in interpretation? Should they read these differently and maybe just say, you know, that and each, they're kind of the same because they were meant to say the same thing. Or should they pretend that, you know, they were meant to say different things? If you put in each, you meant each. And if you put in that, you meant that. I mean, that's certainly what we teach our students, at least in the first year, but I'm not sure I believe it. So, dude, like there's, books and books and books of literature on that and it's unresolved, right? So it's a little bit, I'm feeling a little bit of uh, kind of the weight of centuries on my shoulders here. I think that for better or worse, it's pretty clear that in a contract like this, a court is likely to be very textualist. So they're going to say, you know, each means each, and that means that, and final means final, and 50% amendment means 50% amendment, which actually means that final is not fine, right? So I think that, and I think that that's probably about right in this context. The irony of it, of course, is that, you know, and I went back and looked at the email traffic for kind of when these particular clauses were discussed and talked to some folks and nobody but nobody but nobody focused on tool limb aggregation. The thought was, you know, this thing has been around for 10 years. It's in all of these, you know, it's in at least four issues out there already. And, you know, Europe was adopting, you know, tool limb. It's really kind of incorporating whatever that is by reference, and moreover, because the expectation was that you would be using single limb. And by the way, everybody understood that the near maturities and the long maturities were going to have different interests and that there would be economic differences. The thought was, well, you would probably either use bond by bond to give a special deal to the guys maturing tomorrow, and then everybody else you would sweep into the single limb. Tulim at some point was just a footnote. It wasn't even going to go into the form. It was going to be, well, and if the issuer really wants another option, here it is in a footnote, right? So, and I'm sure, you know, this is Rashomon, right? Everybody's going to have a different memory of what happened. But my recollection and everything I'm able to kind of exhume from the public form contemplation process is that nobody focused on that each or anything about two limb. Everything was all about uniformly applicable and single limb. You know, the word each had crept up before, 
but it was always qualified by something that said something like, and, you know, if the issuer wants to do partial cross-series, you know, aggregation or partial cross-series modification, whatever, multiple series modification, they could do it so long as they say in advance that the consequences of Montana voting against is Montana dropping out rather than everybody blowing up. And so that's how it is in Eurocax, that's how it is in the English form ICMACAX, so that, and that particular carve out then qualifies the general meaning of each, right, using your canonical rules of contract interpretation. So the trouble is that that little qualification, you know, dropped out at some point between August 2014 and May 2015. And what does the court do about that? And I think that's where kind of the literature is, right? And the trouble with saying, well, the court should just say, you know, should look at Anna Gelpern's, you know, email archive and say, oh, you know, nobody really meant to do something this significant here. And I think there's some evidence to the contrary, but I think I'm right, is that, you know, I think the I think that's kind of, and it's a bit fraught, right? Because, you know, there are a lot of email archives out there. And so that would be a lot of reading for a court and a lot of room for error. So now that said, let's go back to your. No, are you really saying we should go back to being traditional formalists? You're one of the most wait, innovative thinkers. No, so, don't go there. Wait, 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 right? So like, I am like, totally a hyper-realist. And I think that in the end, the courts are going to, you know, do what they do to, I mean, for God's sake, in the last bunch of Argentina lawsuits, the judge got ticked off and first he was, you know, typing in block capitals and then he just like, you know, told Argentina to, you know, jump off a cliff. So I think the record is realist. But I think that it's that saying that the record should be so realist in a set of contracts that is so kind of, so process fraud, right? And let me explain what I mean here. So, and this is where I'm going to take issue with uh, me to some of your recent sort of history writing and just the kind of the bigger canon of kind of where, you know, where do CACs come from? And, and you guys have also written about this you know, the, the people's history and all of that. So I think we should think about two very different kinds of CACs, right? They're public CACs and they're private CACs. The private CACs are the ones that start with Francis Beaufort Palmer in the corporate bonds in 1880. And, you know, there was a problem because all these firms were getting liquidated and some brilliant mind in the market found a market solution right? This is market success, not market failure, right? The CACs that appear in New York in 2003 are actually a regulatory intervention in response to perceived market failure, right? There was years and years, we had years and years of kind of official sector, different government agencies swaying, encouraging, cajoling governments to adopt these CACs in their bonds because of the expectation that bond restructurings would get messy. 
So then they get adopted. And as you know, you and I have written, one of the arguments for their adoption was not that they did such a great job at debt restructuring, but rather that sticking these CACs in your bonds was going to shut down the chatter about treaty-based sovereign bankruptcy, right? So the job of public CACs is not to do a neat job, to do a, you know, a great job of debt restructuring uh, and to continue adapting to circumstances the way we saw Argentina and Ecuador adapt to their circumstances, right? But rather, the job of public CACs is to, A, message that contracts are just as good as bankruptcy, right? And B, sort of try to pretend like they do a job that is just as good as bankruptcy. And of course, they don't, right? And this is why, you know, everyone is surprised, right? So the creditors are surprised because final is not final. And, you know, somebody read the contracts better than they did. And then everyone who had kind of blithely gone on thinking that, well, CAC's bankruptcy, same difference, is suddenly discovering actually that like one puny little clause can't solve all of humanity's problems and spoiler alert, won't produce a COVID vaccine either, right? So that's where we are. Thankfully, we will have a COVID vaccine next week, I think. That's the, I think I heard that maybe on the November 3rd or 2nd. <laughs> yeah, right. Next, next week would be too early because then we would know how it works. Um, I, so I, it's just a text. Kept, oh my God. That's precisely the point. We have kept Anna long enough. I'm going to say though, one of the more common experiences of my professional life is starting out disagreeing with me too. In fact, like not just disagreeing, but thinking that he's utterly insane and then slowly being persuaded that he's correct. Like that happens to me several times a year, I would say. But I, I am still convinced that this is a solution in search of a problem and that whatever interpretive fiascos we have had in the sovereign debt markets cannot reasonably be attributed to textualism or some like excessive commitment to textualism. I will go to my grave believing that. Um, we'll go to your grave. Yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to hopefully hold that belief for a long time. But I that is I think a topic for another day given how generous Anna has been with her time, but thank you. Thank you so much. And this was so fun. Yeah. We so fun. But we have we have a uh, title for our episode when final is not Final. Thank you, Anna. You're so good at titles. This is this is fantastic. So I hope you'll be back to our podcast many, yes, many please. times. Um, guys, you're you're beyond generous. Um, stay safe, stay well, and you know, vote Montana. I don't know.